0: On FM 89.3, the best of Saturday mornings.
1: International News Review. Steve Oaken uh, joining us on the line today. Steve, where in the world are you anyway?
2: Well, I am in Phuket where I have to say one, Happy New Year. And two, I didn't realize a trip to Iceland makes you a volcanologist.
1: Fair anyway, enough. well, we hope you're having a nice uh, family vacation there. And, Steve, a lot of people are having a nice weekend because they were so lucky to make it through this amazing, amazing air crash in Japan. Uh, sadly, five people perished, and we do want to acknowledge that. But uh, two hundred, over 250 people survived when a JAL plane landed basically on top of a Japanese Coast Guard plane. The investigation has now gone toward looking at a little bit more toward pilot, perhaps pilot error on the side of uh, the Coast Guard plane. But tell us where we at with this, and, and then let's bring in a bigger discussion about airplane safety, because this story might have been different 10 or 15 years ago had we been talking about it then.
2: Well, really—I mean, what's fascinating here is that you had 379 people mm. all aboard an, an Airbus 350 aircraft who survived, you know, the plane being engulfed in flames. And so it's a a major achievement for aviation safety, but also huge problems happened. Clearly, it was either the pilot of the Coast Guard or air traffic control, which had a a terrible miscommunication, which caused the death of those on the Coast Guard aircraft. But amazing and, and miraculous in a way, given what happened that all 379 people survived and this is something that really is attributable in part to where it happened and in part to the advances we've had in aviation safety and in part to a lot of luck.
0: Well, I think the where it happened is fascinating because it happened to be on the day I was flying back from the UK to Singapore. And it's interesting to me, the parallel. So when the Icelandic volcano erupted, the calmest people in the world seem to be the Icelanders. And then similarly with this, the calmest people seem to be those actually on the plane. Is it a stretch to say there's something about the culture, the training that just made this Japanese miracle just that, a miracle?
2: Had to have been, I think, because if you look at here, we had a a Japanese domestic flight. So the presumption, of course, is that nearly everyone on board was Japanese. And, you know, look, we've all been to Japan. You know, the culture there is very different than the culture in the U.S. or the U.K. I mean, could you imagine if a you, a plane was on fire in england and everyone was told so be calm just go out one at a time <laughs> leave your carry on luggage behind don't take anything with you would americans or brits have listened to those instructions like the japanese did I got to be highly doubtful in fact and when i was a, you know at the department of transportation Um, You know, we worked on some of these aviation security and safety issues, and we would see videos of the types of trainings they did for evacuations. And let me just say they were not always the most orderly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That I could believe. But also just to add to that, a shout out to the engineering, the design of the Airbus A350, because it looks like that played a key role due to its carbon fiber reinforced plastic, Steve.
2: Well, and that's what I was referring to, is, is that it's the composites that are used now in aircraft. I mean, the seats and the carpeting
1: and the everything. The less flammable. That that, yeah,
2: yeah t- they, they are designed to take longer to ignite under intense heat and flames. And that is what is going to give people more time to get off. Now, let me just say, though, this Airbus in particular is supposed to be certified to have an evacuation in less than 90 seconds. Mm. This one, the last crew member left after 18 minutes. Mm. Mm. So this was a failure in a mm. way of not hitting what the aircraft is certified to do. And, and they believe that it was because of uh, miscommunications between the crew, the crew taking too long to figure out which um, exits you could use or not use because you have to. You obviously don't want to open up into flames and have people go out into flames. And so, so this is a very difficult situation. It took way longer than it was supposed to have, and still, all 379 people survived. And in Glenn, that has to be in large part because of the technology that's now used yeah. um, for aircraft to prevent this exactly from happening.
1: Now, having said that, I think most of the passengers were off much much faster. Than 18 minutes, like within three or four minutes, right? Like most of them got off quickly.
2: I'm saying even three minutes is too slow. Yeah. I mean, this is supposed to get done in 90 seconds. And they mm. said it actually, they didn't, from what the reports I had read, they hadn't started evacuating for three minutes because the crew wasn't sure, okay, of the six exits or however many where they were, I think they only went out of one or two because they were worried about fires or the slides weren't working. Right. So it really was. Slow and even as slow as it was, everybody
1: survived. Yeah, well, it, it's a great news story, and it was mm. certainly could have been a very different story. And again, you know, all due respect to the Japanese Coast Guard folks who were actually on an aid mission to yeah. Ishikawa Prefecture to help with the with the earthquake aftermath there. And so it, it's a tragedy that they uh, perished in this, but boy, so happy that so many people didn't.
2: And and because aviation is so so safe, when you have a disaster like this and here you have multiple disasters within one you have the disaster of how did the coast guard plane get there to begin with you have how you know this plane landing on top of that one you have the fire breaking out you're having it taking so long there are going to be studies and lessons learned from this for Mm -hmm. years to come and it's going to hopefully make aviation even even safer than it is, which is, of course, is already the in in, in some respects, the, the safest form of travel by far.
1: Awesome. OK, let's move on. Uh, a very interesting story this week. The Israeli defense minister uh, has outlined a proposal for the future governance of Gaza once the war is over there, not pleasing the hard right folks, not pleasing the left, uh, the hard left folks. He has put a stake in the ground. What do we know about what he has said, uh, even as the U.S. Secretary of state is back on the ground in in the middle east trying to work out some sort of solution.
2: Well, I think the most important thing that came out of this is that the Israelis are now saying we have to have some post invasion, you know, post retaliation plan for what has happened. And so we now at least have all sides agreeing that we have got to come to some resolution here hopefully sooner rather than later, that is going to have the components of what the Israelis talked about, which is there is going to be, you have to eliminate Hamas, you have to eliminate the terrorist threat against Israel, you have to have a two-state solution, you have to have someone governing that second state, you have to be figuring out how are you going to, to be ensuring that when you have two states that you're not going to have a repeat of of October 7th. So all of this is a a starting point to move forward, and it couldn't come at a better time because you now see Singapore-flagged vessels under attack Mm -hmm. from the Houthi rebels in the Red Sea as a result of what's going on in Israel-Gaza. And so what President Biden has been trying to do and, and leading a, a, an FF, very much behind the scenes is to keep this contained to Israel-Gaza. And it has, for the most part so far, but it, it, it could get a lot worse.
0: Mm. That was exactly what I was going to say, Steve. Just look at recent events. You've got the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels, as you mentioned there. They declared their support for uh, Hamas. They've been hijacking vessels in the Red Sea. You've got Islamic State claiming responsibility for those two explosions in Iran. And, of course, you've got the senior Hamas leader being taken out in Lebanon. So, yes, on the one hand, you're talking about a post-war plan, but really the war seems to be spreading, no?
2: Well, it it, it hasn't spread yet to the point that we could say it's now become a regional conflict, but it is starting to hit Singapore even, Mm. right, where you are going to see the maritime interests in Singapore are starting to get hit. You are going to see costs going up in Singapore for goods because about 12% of global trade passes through the Red Sea um, and it is, it's now getting rerouted. Everything is going to take longer and it's going to become more expensive and that's going to hit Singapore. So that's why you had Singapore being one of only 13 countries to join the U.S. and Japan in the U.K. telling the Houthis, you must stop or, or we will use force And we will support the use of force against you. Singapore, the only country in ASEAN to come out in in favor of that statement. So it's not there yet, Neil, but it's starting to creep in. It's creeping in in the Red Sea. It's creeping in on the, the, the northern border between Israel and Lebanon. You see it happening in Iraq. You see it happening in Iran. And so hopefully the diplomacy will continue to work.
1: Isn't that funny? We're right back to our supply chain discussion that we had, you know, during COVID and post-COVID. And also when the Suez Canal was blocked by that big uh, freighter. The vessel, yeah. Uh, and, and you know, for everything that we – all the lessons we feel like we learned about supply chains and the sensitivity of them, here we are, a different – a different story, but the same possible outcome or conclusion.
2: Glenn, this is a perfect example of the polycrisis, crisis, right? right? Because what you have happening in the Red Sea, so you have the crisis in Israel-Hamas affecting the Red Sea, which could spark a supply chain crisis. At the same time, on the other side of the world, the climate crisis is impacting the Panama Canal, because the low water levels, they're linked to drought. It means it's only operating at 55% of its capacity. You've got the the two crises bumping into each other, the poly crisis you have being made up in this instance of the climate crisis and the Israel Hamas crisis, leading to supply chain disruptions in Singapore and around the world, which is going to impact our economy. And it just shows how intertwined everything is in this
1: party crisis. All right, we have to move on, Steve. There's no easy transition between these two stories, so I'm just going to jump into the next one, and that is possible writers strike in bollywood now hollywood just figured out its writer's strike a a month or two ago and are back to work Uh, and this of course directly impacts your son who's in that business in new york city and neil and others uh but now we're looking at bollywood which of course the film business there is massive what do we know about what's happening and and will this actually shut down productions and things like that
2: well, of course, while I am a professional writer, as is Neil, I will, I will defer to him a bit on this one. But as one, from one author to another, look, they, what's happening to the writers in India is just the way they are treated is so much worse than you, you saw in the U.S. And so I think as you see the, the screenwriters coming together and really using the union to get equality in terms of bargaining position versus the producers, that doesn't exist in India, in India, the producers basically control everything unless you happen to have, you know, one of these very rare breakout hits where you become a very famous writer in India. And that's very rare, and so this is a chance of trying to take a page, I think, out of out of labor relations in the U.S. and bringing them into India. And uh, Neil, do you think it'll work for the writers in India?
0: It's a very good point, Steve, and I'm not sure because you make the key point there, labor relations. Of course, the two disputes are very different. In the U.S., it was yeah. the, f- the impending fear of AI, yep. AI being used to write scripts. Uh, many books are being plagiarized around the world, including mine, as we sit here. They're being gobbled up by AI platforms to regurgitate scripts and books. By this the way, I'm, I'm
1: about to release a new murder mystery that I've written over the holiday, <laughs> yeah. so you'll be interested to read that, Neil. Oh,
0: okay, great, yeah. Did you- <laughs> it's Inspector Go. Inspector Go, I
1: <laughs> chat GBT has been your friend, right?
0: You just put it in specter Lowe. Yeah, I know what you did. It's fine. It's fine. But in Bollywood, it's very uh, different, Steve, yeah. isn't it? They don't have the union support or the power that they do in the US. That seems to be a key difference to me. The writers have greater union backing and support and therefore more power than they do in India.
2: Well, and, and like, to show even the power the producers have in India, they are now putting clauses in contracts that the screenwriter will have to indemnify the producer for any loss incurred if there is a protest or a controversy sparked by a film. And we've seen a lot of that in India, where where especially where you have a very... Um, growing nationalism, and if films are mm. nationalistic enough, mm. that there are protests, and then that hurts the you know the ticket sales. And now the producers are going to go after the writers for that. I mean, the producers seem to control so much in Bollywood, um, and that it is is something that if if there can be a collective action, that that is how you solve things it, to try and, and level the empower balance, but. I, in India, I just agree with you. I don't see how that's going to happen as it, as it recently did, where the U.S. writers had a huge success.
1: Yeah, we'll keep our eyes on that because of that industry is impacts so many people across India uh, and is so important to their uh, to their livelihood. So we will we will uh, track that story. All right, I came across a headline this week, Steve, that I, I don't often see, and I said this is a story worth talking about. I'll read the headline on CNN on the website: Hershey is sued for. For selling Reese's peanut butter cups without quote cute pumpkin faces all right so take us through what happened what's what's happening here and in, in this iconically American story <laughs> <laughs> Wow OK, so Reese's Pieces, which, of course, everybody
2: loves, unless you I, have a peanut allergy. I love I don't, them.
1: I, no, right? I love them. Are you kidding me? One of my favorite... One of, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are always one of my favorite candies. Anyway, carry on. So, well,
2: they have just not one little... <laughs> they really have it.
1: Really
2: <laughs> only one little unit in some remote part of Singapore. Um, <laughs> so basically what's happened is that this is just an example of lawsuits trying to solve everything which we don't need to have happen in the U.S. In this instance... So Reese's uh, for Halloween puts on its label a Mm -hmm. like a pumpkin face on one of the Reese's peanut butter cups. And mm-hmm. so that is on the label. And so a, a woman... The
1: jack-o'-lantern, you know, with the the eyes and the mouth cut out and all that, right? Right.
2: And, yeah. it, and and so, but it's just a picture because when you open up the Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, it's actually not on each Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. It's the real Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. But they're using this to say, hey, this is a good way to, to, to give out candy for Halloween. Think about Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And a woman says... Well, I opened it, and I only bought it because of that, and because this actually wasn't on the peanut butter cup itself. This is false advertising. It is deceptive, and I am going to sue you. And I'm not only going to sue you for probably the 5 or $10 that I spent, but it's going to be a class action lawsuit, so everybody <laughs> in the United States who potentially bought one of these can sue you. And it's just a – now, the legal standard is – Would a reasonable person believe that there's actually these, you know, images of pumpkins on every peanut butter cup and that is going to drive their purchase? And so I just hope this lawsuit gets thrown out.
0: Steve, I know this is a whole other podcast to itself, but I'll ask the question anyway. What is it with the United States and daft lawsuits Mm, like this one? mm. What is it? Why does it keep happening?
2: Okay, on the on the on the positive side, class action lawsuits can have a major impact on keeping businesses in line because look, yet businesses do do things that are deceptive towards consumers or are harmful towards consumers, and if one consumer gets hurt, uh, or, you know, gets damaged, injured, the damages to them are going to be piddly. Sure. But if you can collect them all together, so. They are. You shouldn't get rid of class action lawsuits and you shouldn't get rid of class action lawsuits when there is just a small damage, because then there's no other way these companies are going to stay in line and think about what they're doing. But it's just the culture of the United States
1: has gotten to the point where everything
2: gets settled with a lawsuit, and mm. you've got to throw some of these out because you don't want to clog up the legal system. Well, that's and bring just it. That's
1: just it. I mean, you know, it's it's surprising to me that it's even going to go to court. I mean, the judge should just say, "Get out of my courtroom right now!" Before we even start this charade. It is just ridiculous, uh, you know, to think that somebody had pain and suffering because they opened up a chocolate <laughs> thing and didn't see a little jack-o'-lantern face on their – anyway. It, ugh, it's, I had
0: pain and suffering the last time I had Reese's Pieces. <laughs> <laughs>
2: hey, we got, we've got we got 91 indictments against President Trump. Let's focus on those.
0: <laughs> I agree.
2: <laughs> All right. Not, not whether – not whether a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup should have a that's, pumpkin face. I
0: agree. That's the real Halloween horror, Steve. <laughs> we we did have
1: one more story with, that I wanted to talk about, but I think we'll talk about it next week because we do have to go. Did you if, quickly? Because we just got a couple of seconds. Have you made any New Year's resolutions? Are you doing Are you doing that this year? Do you do it at all?
2: Uh, you know, I I do it, and it's it's usually something that I try and say I'm going to hit my ten thousand steps every day. So something that's achievable. Spend a little bit less at it, have Two. It's it hit the ten thousand steps, which I'll probably do for January and then stop.
1: Beautiful, and then it'll become intermittent.
2: And I want to read a book a month because I oh, I read so much, but not books.
1: It, yeah, it, yeah. You
2: know, so constantly, it, like, like I'm 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 going deep into the weeds on the passing of David Soul from Starsky and
1: Hutch. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, Steve. Thank you so much. We will see you back in Singapore next week. Enjoy the rest of your holidays. Safe travels back. Happy New Year. Thank you.